Well, once again, welcome to our midweek Bible study. We continue our course, Living by Faith. This is now Lesson 8 in that course, and the title of this teaching is The Enemy of Our Faith. As we have mentioned, faith is so critically important to the believer. And the greater we can develop our faith, the more effective we can be for God on the earth. Now, obviously, it's not a case of, oh, well, we just develop our faith and the enemy of our soul stands back and does nothing. Quite the contrary. The moment you and I determine to develop our faith, please understand the battle lines which have always been drawn against us by the enemy of our souls begin to become stark reality. All right. Now, let's look at 1 Timothy 6 verse 12 which just explains this battle, but let me just first pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that your word will produce a hundredfold, that it will reach fertile soil, Lord. Open the eyes of our understanding and grant us revelation, I pray, Holy Spirit, that we might be equipped to take on this battle and to win. In the wonderful name of Yeshua. Amen. 1 Timothy 6 verse 12 speaks about fighting the good fight of faith. They hold on eternal life, whereunto you are called, and have professed a good profession before many witnesses. You see, we are exhorted to fight the good fight of faith. It is a battle. Now, of course, there are no prizes for guessing who the enemy of our faith is. But let's just go to 1 Peter 5 verse 8. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, notice your adversary. You and I have an adversary, and he has a personalized plan of attack for everybody. Please know that. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walks about, seeking whom he may devour. Can you see that? Now, we don't need to give Satan unnecessary attention. But we do need to be wise about his devices and understand how he operates. This will give us the edge, obviously, over him. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 says, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now please understand, Satan hates our faith with a passion and with very good reason. You see, Satan couldn't give a hoot about intellectual, theological religion. As long as God remains a vague ethical concept somewhere out there in our thinking, it poses exactly no threat to his kingdom, and he is free to continue wreaking havoc on humankind. However, once the kingdom of heaven breaks out here on earth, it will always do so at the expense of the kingdom of darkness. That's when Satan gets ballistic. As we have learned already, it is our faith which translates the kingdom of heaven onto the earth. And that is why Satan hates it with such a passion. He will do anything to undermine the faith of the believer. There is no limit to the depths of deceit and depravity that he will go if it means the reduction of this powerful substance in the heart of man. For this reason, wherever and however the potential exists for faith to be produced, there you will find the devil doing his utmost to prevent it. He goes to church regularly. 
and if allowed to, sets up shop in universities and seminaries throughout the world. Mankind has foolishly allowed him to influence entire educational systems and the media is all but run by his cronies. All of this for one purpose and one purpose alone, ultimately, to undermine faith. If he can do that, the world becomes his to control. When faith does arise, however, and the kingdom begins to break out, there you will find the enemy doing his best to staunch the flood. There are many examples of this in the New Testament. Let's look at the Gospel of John, John 9, 1-30. Here we have this incidence of this man that was born blind. You might recall the situation. The Lord comes across him and essentially restores his sight. Now, he was a member of the synagogue, the local synagogue, and as such, the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders were, so to speak, his pastors, his oversight spiritually. Now, if somebody has a miracle like that happen in their life, imagine having been born blind all their days, not been able to see, condemned to be a beggar all their life, and then this wonderful miracle takes place. You would have thought that this would have been a great cause for celebration and joy at what God has done. But bear in mind what I've been speaking about. You see, the moment the kingdom of heaven breaks out, because indeed a man having his sight restored is the kingdom of heaven breaking out. Whenever that happens, the enemy gets stirred up and he will, as he has to use humans on this earth, he will find whoever is available to minimize what has happened. Now, the Pharisees accost this man and they say, Who did this thing for you? The man answered and said to them, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that we know not from whence he is, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God hears not sinners, but if any man be a worshipper of God and does his will, him he will hear since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were altogether born in sins, and tries to teach us. They cast him out of the synagogue, they excommunicated him. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? What's happening here? You see, the religious establishment because they felt challenged and jealousy came to the fore, the enemy was able to stir them up to try and minimize the effect of this wonderful, wonderful miracle. You see, perhaps a word of caution is necessary here. If you and I are developing our faith, when our faith is growing in its formative stages, it's probably a good idea to give the religious establishment as wide a berth as possible. It is a contaminating influence. The Lord even warned about this. Matthew sixteen eleven. How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? 
The Lord wasn't speaking about bread when he gave that warning. He was speaking about leaven. Just that little word placed in the wrong place can undermine your faith. A word, for example, like God is able to do anything. And if he doesn't heal somebody, then God doesn't want them healed. You understand? Well, apart from this frontal attack on the emergence of our faith, Satan has a range of standard devices that he tries with regularity, most often in attempt to prevent faith from growing. We're just going to expose some of them so that you and I can be aware. The first strategy, of course, is lies. Satan is the father of lies, you see. And lies undermine the truth. That's the nature of a lie. What God thinks is the truth, the lie undermines that. For example, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? Can you see that? Just casting doubt on the truth. But that goes together with ignorance and confusion. All right? Lies breed ignorance and confusion. If you and I have been lied to, we are ignorant. And when we are ignorant, we become confused. As we said, Satan is the father of lies. He's very, very capable at it. Skilled, highly skilled at lies. John 8, 44. You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Right, so that's the nature of Satan, to cast doubt on the veracity of God's word. You see, because faith grows by hearing, as we've said so many times, and hearing by the word, it makes common sense that if the word is destroyed somehow, faith will die automatically. You see, this is what is being alluded to in the parable of the sower. Mark 4 verse 17. Remember it speaks about the sower went out to sow, and the different ground on which it was sown. And speaking of the stony ground, it says this, But when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Notice, that affliction comes across the path of the believer to try and destroy the word. The word is key, you see. If the word is in our heart, it will produce faith. So you see, the purpose is to steal the word. Now, please understand, Satan, if he is unable to destroy the word by direct opposition, and he has done so on numerous occasions, his next best trick is to infiltrate, distort, or water it down with half-truths. The most powerful lie is one that looks very much like the truth. You see, the powerful lie is 99% truth, but 1% untruth. So we swallow what we think is the truth, but we've also swallowed the poison. And that's how the devil loves to quote scripture, completely out of context, of course. But if he blends it enough with the truth to make it sound convincing, then he's got us. There is always a twist. So if you hear a voice saying to you something like, is this really God's word? 
you will know who has come to town. Amen. See, and once you and I have swallowed a lie, then we become confused and we struggle around in ignorance. The biggest problem in the church today is wholesale ignorance. Ignorance that has been birthed through continual, continual lies. Anyway, if you and I are able to overcome the lies of the devil, and it's an ongoing battle as we will explain, he has other techniques, as it were, which are closely connected. Fear and doubt. Fear and doubt. Let's look at Matthew 14, 28 to 31. This is the story of Peter walking on water. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be you, bid me to come to you on the water. And he, the Lord, said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Yeshua. But, now listen to this. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. Now notice, the moment he became afraid, the man who was walking on the water, he began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately, the Lord stretched out his hand, caught him, and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? See that? Now we must understand the connection between fear and doubt. Please understand, Satan is unable because he is cut off from God. He is unable to create anything. He's stuck in the position where he has to look at what God has done and make a counterfeit. A counterfeit is something that looks like the original but is not. You see, that's the nature of the lies we said. Now you see, the kingdom of heaven, as we've taken a lot of trouble to explain, is built by faith and that faith is based on the truth. Know the truth. It will set you free. Faith grows by hearing the truth, you see. So we have the truth. We use that truth to develop our faith and the kingdom of heaven manifests. Satan's technique is a counterfeit of that, almost like a negative mirror image. Instead of truth, he sows the lie. The lie will not produce faith, it will produce fear. Fear is the counterfeit of faith. You can't have fear and believe at the same time. It's impossible. You either have one or the other. And fear induces the kingdom of darkness into our lives. It's important to know that if you and I are not afraid, the devil cannot touch us. If you and I are not afraid of contracting disease, and I'm talking about deep in our hearts, we have no fear whatsoever, it's impossible for the devil to give you that disease. It's impossible. He can't do it. Before he can do anything to somebody, he must make them afraid. And that's exactly what happened. Here Peter is walking on water. The enemy stirs up the seas to make them roar, to have a great theatrical effect. I always say this. The devil loves a pantomime, you see. He starts to throw his toys out of the cot and humans, if they are not trained, react by being afraid. You see. The moment we are afraid, faith goes out the window, and that's when we begin to sink. Now, in the natural, 
Can I ask this question? If you and I are walking on water, we are walking on water, does it matter if a wave comes our way? Let me put it this way. If you are walking on solid ground through the felt and a copy comes your way, do you get afraid? Does that mean you can't walk on the sand anymore? You see? He was walking on wood. He was operating supernaturally. If a wave had come his way, he just had to walk over it. A wave is water, is it not? Do you grasp the logic of it? But you see, fear is not logical. Logic goes out the window. The devil made the sea boisterous. You see, he was the god of this world at that stage. He made the sea boisterous. To do what? To make Peter afraid. He didn't want Peter walking on the water. But you see, the moment Peter got afraid, that's when he began to sink. Quite an interesting thought struck me the other day about the story. The Lord came and lifted him up. What I didn't realize is that they continued walking to the boat. Peter continued to walk on the water. Amen? He didn't have to swim back. The Lord lifted him up and together they walked onto the boat. Praise be to God. Amen? So you see, we have to be careful of this. Job made this mistake. Very often people speak about poor old Job and how God was so unkind to him. Well, look at the passage of Scripture here. You'll understand Job. Job 3.25. Job had kids that he was very worried about, by the way. So worried that he offered sacrifices day and night for them. And if you read between the lines, he had every good reason to be afraid for them. But you see, notice Job's statement when calamity comes upon the family. He says this, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. Amen. What Job didn't realize is that if he hadn't been afraid, the devil would not have been able to put it on him. But then, of course, he didn't have the benefit of the New Testament. So please understand something. Whenever you and I are trying to exercise our faith, be assured the devil will come to try and make us afraid. Another example from the word is Luke 8, 41-55. You might remember the story of the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus. His little daughter was very ill. I assume she had something like leukemia, but she was very, very ill. And the Lord was in, I think it was Jericho. Anyway, the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, fell down at the Lord's feet and besought him that he would come into his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a dying. But you see, on the way to the house, the opportunity to be afraid steps right in the way. They are delayed slightly by the woman with the issue of blood. You might remember that whole story. And I can just imagine Jairus watching the Lord heal this woman and getting a bit upset because she's spending time, valuable time, telling him about her whole story and he's got a daughter that is dying. Well, what happens is while he's busy speaking, one from the ruler of the synagogue's house comes to them and says, don't trouble the master anymore, your daughter is dead. Now that must have cast such a pall over that 
gathering there, despite this wonderful miracle that had taken place, Jairus' heart must have hit the ground. Devastating. But notice what the Lord says. The moment he heard it, he says this, Fear not. Do you see that? Fear not. Almost like Jairus. Don't be afraid. Don't let fear get hold of you. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. Well, as with Peter, Jairus also had this enemy of his faith try to rob it from him. But the Lord warned against it, took him along anyway, and the daughter was healed. You see, I had an experience like this well very often in the faith battle. I remember once I was believing for my son's healing. He was a little boy then, and he had contracted some form of infection, quite common for children, chest infection. Anyway, he was in bed, and I put my hand on his chest, and I began to pray, pray in the Spirit for him to be healed. This went on for quite a while, and things seemed to be getting better. And then something strange happened, which, if you understand what's going on here, is not strange at all. At 12 o'clock at night, midnight, Timothy woke up, and these were his words. He said, Dad, I can't see. I can't see. Now, can you imagine, at midnight, having prayed for hours, your son says he can't see. What do you think the devil starts to cackle in your ear? Things like, you see, wise guy, Mr. Faith, you've caused your son to go blind. An opportunity to get really afraid. But however, can I just say, because I had a great deposit of the word in my heart, I listened to those words and then I started to just regurgitate, if you can call it that, what God says about this whole thing. By stripes you were healed, etc., etc. And before long, everything came right. And to this day, Timothy can see very well. Thank you very much. My point is, what was the enemy's tactic? To try and get me off faith into fear. All right? Off faith into fear. Do not be afraid. Only believe. Right. Another enemy of our faith, and one that is extremely subtle, is carnal reasoning. Carnal reasoning. Reasoning things out logically with our minds. Many a Christian has lost out on the blessing of God because the devil has been able to reason him out of taking a step in faith. There's warnings against this in the word of God. Let's read Mark chapter 2 verse 8. The Lord is busy ministering in a certain wise. And then it says this, And immediately when Yeshua perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Now you see, we're not saying that you and I must throw common sense out of the window. We're not saying that we have to behave irrationally. But we have to understand something. God's ways are not our ways. And you see, our minds, if we understand the words of God, more often than not, our minds will not be able to reason out how God will honor our faith. Can you see that? His ways are higher than ours, and very often we can't understand how he's going to do it. 
You see, but we're not required to understand how he's going to do it. We have to understand that he can do it and trust him to do it. Who ever thought of an ocean parting? A man walking on water? Blind eyes opening? A little girl coming back to life? God's ways are not ours. And the big danger is that in a faith situation, our minds rise up and try to reason with us. You see, if Satan can get us to doubt God's word, fill us with fear and doubt to induce us to revert rather to our own carnal reasoning, he can destroy our faith. What then should our response be in the light of this onslaught? Well, you see, the best answer to any lie, of course, is not just to know, but rather to be totally convinced of the truth. John 8.32 says this, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You see, Christ was fully conversant with the Spirit and letter of the available scriptures of his day. So he was able, when challenged by the devil, to boldly proclaim, It is written. Do you remember that temptation seen in the wilderness? When the devil said, make these stones into nice, fresh, baked bread. That must have been quite tempting after 40 days without any food. But you see, what rose up in his heart? It is written. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, the lie was challenged with the truth. Then the other temptation on the top of the temple cast herself down. Once again, Matthew 4, 7, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You see, and then, interesting to note that when Satan was rebuffed the first time with the word, what was his response? He quoted the word himself. Is it not written that he shall bear thee up with angels' wings? Can you see how Satan operates? You know, I can easily find a scripture that will justify us operating not in faith. But you see, when he was challenged, every time the Lord said, it is written. And he could say that because those words were deeply implanted in him and he was convinced of them. We notice that once he was confronted three times with the word of God, Satan couldn't stick around. Luke 4.13 And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Now please understand, arriving at the place of total conviction is not just a matter of a few hours Bible study however. This variety of complete assurance arises only with consistent dedication to the process of renewing our minds daily. In doing this, when the lie does surface or the challenge to God's word comes our way, we recognize instantly, as Christ did, what it is. Romans 12 verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, as you have said, by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. But you see, it's not enough just to discern the lie. We have the further responsibility of resisting the force of these lies until the word regains supremacy in our thinking. You see, we have to resist. When we recognize that it's a lie, 
we need to resist it. 1 Peter 5 verse 9 Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. This is not a passive activity. Not at all. It requires determination, guts and stickability. We cannot afford to let one negative thought take root. See that? We might recognize it's a lie, but that lie can still hang around in our subconscious, speaking havoc to our faith. We have to take the bull by the horns and confront it. See, powerful scripture in this regard is 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, it's not passive. Not passive. And you see, we have to continue resisting until we have victory. Until that lie that is inside of us has been totally demolished and is replaced with conviction of the truth. You see, if we don't do that, if we let it lie, the leaven will fester and it will permeate the whole dough. But let me just say this, if resisting the enemy of our souls becomes a habit, it becomes easier. And you see, even though we have to be on our guard, the devil will soon learn that he can't really beat us. Knowing that he is running scared of us does give us the edge and is well worth the effort. The alternative is to spend a miserable life constantly kowtowing to his demands, living in fear, which, sad to say, seems to be the lot of most Christians. Another scripture in this regard is Galatians 5 verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Isn't that beautiful? Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Well, those are a number of his strategies, but there's still one that we have to discuss. And can I just say that this strategy has been used with devastating effect. And that strategy is strife. Galatians 5 verse 6 for in Christ Yeshua, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. Do you see that? Faith which works by love. The reverse of that is, if there is no love, faith cannot operate. No love, no working of faith. Now you see, that's probably the main reason why the enemy loves to stir us up one against the other. You see, if there is strife, no matter how much we try, no matter how much we confess and do everything we know to do, when there is strife, our faith is annihilated and the kingdom of heaven cannot proceed on the earth. 
We need to guard vigilantly against this. In a community where love abounds, you will find faith working. Sad to say, if love does not abound, there's very little evidence of faith. Just two scriptures in closing to cement this thought in our minds. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love wants not itself. Is not easily provoked. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Can you see where there's an environment of tolerance, mutual support, encouragement, no pride, no easy provocation. In that environment, it's easy to believe all things, you see. Hopes all things, endures all things, bears all things. Faith can prevail. Finally, Ephesians 4, 2-3. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Where there is unity, you see, where people are in harmony one with another, we're able to take what bit of faith we have, combine it together, and become a mighty force for God on the earth. Amen.